The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, the uh, the lies about classified information at Mar-a-Lago are flying. They are flying. Uh, like, they're uh, flying fast and like furious. Ketchup covered entrees <laughs> yeah. in the West Wing. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I'm like seven. nice one, nice one. Thank yeah. you, thank you. I'm, I'm glad that played. Uh, we're going to talk about that today. The latest on the classified information recovered from Trump's pool house. I think our informed <laughs> speculation. Last week was probably not alarmist enough, if we're being honest. No, I mean, but we were appropriately w- waiting. You know, uh, we were very responsible. Now, now today we can speculate. Measure like twice, yeah. cut once. That's that's the slogan here. Uh, the one year anniversary of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. We're going to talk about Iran and assassination attempts. Some hostage updates. Uh, a wild story about the secret work life of the former prime minister of Australia. <laughs> uh, elections in Kenya. A big election in Kenya. Some news from Burma and Ukraine and why TikTok has a disinformation problem. And then a, a tripping bear, hallucinogenic honey. Tripping bear, yeah, yeah. Something we all I can get behind. I didn't realize that that honey was out there, but we'll get to it. Well, yeah. Apparently, there's some in the U.S. too. Uh, and then you just talked with Congressman Adam Schiff, who runs the Intelligence Committee, I believe. Timely interview. Very timely. Uh, Chairman Schiff runs us through, um, you know, the potential danger of these documents being down in Mar-a-Lago, what the role of Congress is, how they're working with DOJ, how they're working with the director of national intelligence, try to get to the bottom of it, how this fits into the broader threats to democracy, some of the shady cast characters involved, mm-hmm. including a uh, friend of the podcast, Patel. Oh, yeah, my favorite. And, and Trump's, um, shall I say, rather shifty explanations. I like what you did uh, there. For what's going on here. Excellent. Stick yeah. around for that because that guy actually knows what he's talking about. Yes. Uh, before we get to the news, two things, Ben. Uh, I know you love Carrie Mushrooms. You know I love Karyuma shoes. I'm well aware of it now. We yeah. are excited to announce that Crooked and Karyuma have collaborated on two awesome pairs of shoes that listeners of Pod Save the World will love. As always, a portion of the proceeds from these shoes and any item you buy in our store goes to Vote Riders. It's a leading organization focused on helping people vote. Uh, so check them out and get your pair at crooked.com slash kicks. Also, Ben, do you want to know what uh, the Gen Z world is up to, but you're afraid to ask? Uh, yeah, that's my life every day, actually. Okay. Uh, so you're going to love the Dare We Say podcast. This week, two of the three hosts have birthdays. They're turning 21 and 24. I'm going to read you something from the episode description where it says, the girls reflect on the birthday scaries and the anxieties of getting older. God, what I would give for his 21st birthday anxiety. It's a great show. What did you do for your 21st birthday? Uh, like as many shots as I could yeah, before yeah, I fucking fell asleep. Uh, new episodes of Dare We Say drop every Thursday wherever you get your podcast. So check it out. Uh, okay. And another Russia. Another Russia. So four is out. Uh, you don't want to miss this one. If Tell you, us about it. Not. What's happening here? This is, um, we begin with Nemtsov. He's in prison. He's been thrown in prison. He gets harassed by like Putin's goons when he's out of prison. But then we talk about 
how he and Navalny teamed up. It's a great uh, yeah, episode because yeah. if you're curious about not just Nemtsov but Alexei Navalny, he enters the program here. We talked to his chief of staff as well as Jean Nemtsova. How did they build the biggest protest movement in Russia since the fall of the Soviet Union? Is that 2012? That's in 2012. Um, Hillary and, did it, is what Putin said. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Is that not right? Yeah, it's not. That's it's slightly different okay, uh, story it, here. Um, and kind of a, a high point for the Russian opposition, leading obviously to. Um, you know, pretty rough crackdown, but this is a great, I love this. It's actually my favorite episode, I gotta say. You know, why is it that the best episode is always like episode four? Every podcast I've ever worked on, I'm I was like, like, if this is episode one, <laughs> yeah, like this is so good. So uh, binge it, wa- uh, listen to it, watch it if you if you can somehow pull that off. That's yeah, sure, YouTube say. or something, I don't know. <laughs> Stare at your phone, yeah. All right, let's go to uh, Radalago. So the latest news, Ben. So last of the week, we talked about all the kinds of intelligence the president has access to and why keeping that in your basement could be a bad idea. Um, we have since learned that the FBI recovered secret, top secret, and TSSCI information out of the like storage closet. TSSCI stands for Top Secret Sensitive Compartmented Information. You know, I was thinking about how to contextualize this for listeners, Ben, and I remembered back in 2016, Obama did an interview, especially about Hillary's emails. And he said, quote, there's classified and then there's classified. There's stuff that is really top secret, top secret. And there's stuff that is being presented to the president or the secretary of state that you might not want on the transom or going out over the wire. But it's basically stuff that you could get in open source in the public domain. Uh, end of quote. TSSEI information is the, the really sensitive stuff with a few notable exceptions, which are basically programs or activities that were really, really secret. And then they became well known. I think you know what I'm thinking of, but I'm not going to say it for uh-huh. obvious reasons. Um, so... Some reports even say there are nuclear secrets in Trump's little stash. Uh, the lies have evolved over time, Ben. First, the FBI was planting stuff. Now they're claiming Trump had a standing order to declassify every document that he took home with him for some bizarre reason. I had the chance to talk about this at, at great length on PSA the last couple of weeks. What is your take so far about what we've learned and the suggestion that like all of this, that, that there was a standing order just to make this all okay? Yeah, um, so I'll just as quick as I can. Um, because I was pretty stunned, actually, to see the list of boxes and the numbers of boxes that had not just secret, but top secret information. And then I was pretty floored to see a box that said top secret SCI on it, too. Mm-hmm. Just so people know, the very quick and dirty I give on this, if something's secret, it's probably like a report that gives an analytical judgment. You know, the U.S. intelligence community thinks this, but it doesn't get into the weeds of like right. the, the me- methods of collection. Right? Or like a or like a timely military thing. It probably shouldn't yeah. be secret, no, let's be honest. Yeah, a bunch of stuff that's secret shouldn't be secret, but some of it should. Some should. Now, once you get into top secret, and there are a bunch of these documents, that is our intelligence reports or analytical products that are derived from very sensitive methods of collection, right? So let's just say... Like each paragraph could describe, hey, we here's our assessment and we know this because of X. You know, right. Let's let's say we intercepted a phone call from the president of Egypt to his best friend. Hypothetically. Right. right? Hypothetically. Yeah. And so you're saying we think Egypt is gonna have a rough year next year because yeah. we, right. we here's why, right? Or a general or something. Yeah. yeah. Or, you know, we here's what we assess about the military movements of the PLA, the Chinese uh, People's Liberation Army, or, you know, here's this sensitive new technology that the U.S. military is developing, like this, a top secret document is something that is derived from information. And that's important because I'll come back to that in a second, that the U.S. government really doesn't want anybody to know, right? Then top secret SCI, secure compartment information, is so secret that even if you have a top secret clearance, if you don't have a real reason to know this specific 
piece of information, you wouldn't get it, right? Remember how we got, I got read into a few compartmented, like code word level CIA programs. I went over to some goon's office in the EEOB. You just signed some They stuff, made me yeah. write down on a document. And then yeah. when I left, they made me write, sign it again and be like, you forgot this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, no, right. it's, I mean, let's just say this is not stuff that they want in the basement of Mar-a-Lago, no, right? or any other basement. And, and so, like, this matters for a bunch of reasons. I'm going to start the declassification thing. It is such utter bullshit, right? And it's bullshit for so many reasons. First of all, it's bullshit because his own stories don't add up. Like the FBI planted the information, but I had actually already declassified the information that the FBI planted on me, or I didn't know what I was packing, but uh, I had declassified what I didn't know I was packing. Like there's just huge contradictions to their justifications. But then the other really important thing, and I mentioned this briefly with uh, Congressman Schiff, but he can't just declassify like a, a, a bunch of words on a page, right? So like if he has some documents and he says, I'm now, he, the way he's describing it, it's like this, these pieces of paper I'm declassifying. The pieces of paper, I remember reading reports again, and I'm not revealing anything here. That, like it could refer to like 30 different methods of collection, right? Like it, is he declassifying all of those intelligence program. So again, to use the hypothetical, right. if there's some report about country X, you know, um, and we believe this to be the case because we know that for these reasons, he's not just declassifying what we believe, he's declassifying all of the programs that informed that piece of paper, right? It doesn't... It's like Michael Scott being like, I declare bankruptcy. It's just, it's, it's over. Yeah, it, it doesn't just, work that it way. It doesn't work that way, right? So never mind that he went through no protocol. There's no record of this declassification. It's, it's ludicrous. If these, if these documents really were declassified, then, then why can we talk about them now? Like why, right. you know, like they're treating them as pretty classified right now. So it just doesn't hold up. And, and I think it does, like the, the two giant things that cry out for attention here are, the entire system of classification breaks down if dudes are able to pack it up and take it with them. <laughs> um, it's even worse when they're at a place like Mar-a-Lago where like every video I've ever seen from Mar-a-Lago is at a wedding with like 200 drunk people. And, you know, you, if you think the Chinese or Russian government couldn't somehow figure out how to get somebody into Mar-a-Lago, like you, you haven't watched enough fucking movies. Yeah, watch the Americans. I, yeah. I mean, it happened. In 2019, they arrested uh, a Chinese national who had like nine thumb drives on her yeah, and a bunch yeah. of SIM cards and shit. Like, that was not on the up and up. I mean, yeah, the, the current legal framework for classifying documents is Executive Order 13526, which was an Obama EO in 2009. It is absolutely true that a president can declassify whatever he or she wants, with some notable exceptions, including nuclear secrets and anything that names sources and methods within that document. Yeah. So those are some pretty big <laughs> That's exceptions. That's a lot of stuff. That's a lot of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to go through a process. I mean, I remember- Right. You talked to the DNI. The and... example I give is uh, we declassified the bin Laden raid, so you right. could go ahead and talk about that. Or we declassified a, a pretty awful drone strike that ended up killing an American in, in Pakistan. And he literally had to have conver- he had conversations with the DNI and the CIA director before he declassified it. You don't just kind of- let people know a few weeks later after you're no Oh, by present. the way. Yeah. You know. I, uh, on the way out, yeah. Also, and, and, and the last thing I'm going to say, Tommy, is like the why. And well, let's get into the motive, okay. yeah. 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 So but the, just one last point. Like the DOJ, if they want to prosecute him, none of this conversation really matters because they can do so under the Espionage Act, which, yeah. you know, which they can prosecute you for classified or not. Um, but so to the motive, like why have all this crap? So there's the theories, chaos theory you mentioned. Final days were crazy. I took all this stuff. That doesn't explain why he gave back some of it, but not all of it. The second theory that we love, let's just be clear that we love this, is the sort of secrets for the Saudis. Yeah. Um, a lot of people are pointing out how sketchy it is that Jared Kushner got $2 billion from the Saudis for his little investment fund. Maybe these documents are connected. Again, 
I enjoy that theory very much, but there's no evidence to back it up yet. And also, as you pointed out- Other than the $2 billion fund that Jared got. (laughs) But as you've pointed out many times on the show, like Jared has a lot of this information in his head that he could pass along. He doesn't need these documents. Lastly, this is the one we should dig into probably. Um, There's some old interviews surfacing with a former Trump aide named Cash Patel, who I believe you talk uh, about with Congressman Schiff (laughs) later. Uh, Cash worked for Devin Nunes, then he went to the Trump NSC, then he closed out his Trump's single term as the acting chief of staff to the Secretary of Defense. Cash Patel was mysteriously named representative to Trump's to the archives for Trump in June and has suggested in interviews with like TPUSA and other really reputable outlets that he is still working to declassify documents related to the Mueller probe that he thinks will like absolve them. New York Times reported today the FBI has interviewed former White House counsel Pat Cipollone and his deputy about these files. The reporter also said that Trump, when pressed on this, said it's not theirs, it's mine about the boxes. So he's basically a five-year-old. So what do you make of the motive? I just sort of ticked off some of the stuff that's swirling. So, yeah, I mean, first of all, it's none of this is his. It's a property of the U.S. government. Like, you know, it's not like they were Donald Trump's personal uh, musings. But um, look, the first thing we should say up front is that there's no motive that excuses him doing this, right? So let's say he thought they were cool. Like, that's not a reason to take them. Let's say that he likes to have like, you know, John Daly in off the Pro-Am golf tour and show him some nuclear mm. documents because he's showing off. That's not a reason. Like, no. you know, I've heard some people describe that as if it's like the positive, you know, well, maybe he just wanted to show this to some of his buddies. Like, yeah. that's not a reason. The, the North like, Korea letters one is always uh, yeah. like thrown around. I'm sure you and I would love to take a bunch of- uh, Yeah, know, I still know some I, cool stuff. cool, like to show people, tell yeah, you. like, I, I, you know, I can't do that. Um, now, to get into the more nefarious ones, like the Cash Patel one, which which we talked to to Adam Schiff about a little bit, but essentially is like, could he have taken a bunch of documents related to the Russia investigation that he wanted to use for some purpose, right? Now, first of all, what are these documents? What intelligence collection methods is it derived from? You know, selectively pulling documents out of the millions and millions of pages of documents that the intelligence community has because you think they, they make you look good or not going to tell the whole story of the Russian investigation. And, and again, they're still classified. They're not like, it just shows, in some ways, that that's an incredibly damning motive because it shows that he per, it just treats the U.S. intelligence community and the entire U.S. government, for that matter, as just some extension of his personal political interest mm-hmm. and not as, as the national security uh, enterprise that it is. Um, and then, but there's also just, could he profit in any way from this? And and the Saudi one is the most acute example, but there's all kinds of information that would be worth a, a pile of money um, on the open market here. Um, and, and, you know, yes, it's an extreme thing to think that Trump may have wanted to profit off this or wanted people in his family to profit off it. But like, we know that that's never stopped Donald Trump before. Um, so the question is like, did he want to do anything with this information? Did he want to, was it leverage on somebody? Like, I was struck by the like- The France part? Exactly. The box about information pertaining to the president of France. I wonder like, if that's the biggest story in France the last week. You have to suspect yeah. that that's freaky for Macron and, you know, just like catnip for their press corps. Yeah. And, and the thing is, we don't know. And if there was a very benign explanation, like, why haven't we heard it? You know, like, like not to play that, you know, directional card, but like... Yeah, when, when the file says dirt on the French, yeah, it's If not. it literally was just like letters from Kim Jong-un, then he could just say, you know what? All of these are my many boxes of love letters from Kim Jong-un. That's clearly not the case. And the stuff that is stamped, again, this is 
top secret and top secret SCI are stamped all over the documents. And those are intelligence community products usually. They're not like White House, you know. Yeah, it's not a memo. It's not like a memo from him or the chief of staff. Like that would be confidential. That would be marked confidential or something, right? Like so there's no explanation that is a good one. All the explanations, all of them are illegal, like for him having this. Even if he mistakenly took him, that's still illegal. Um, And there's a lot of bad ones. And so we really do need to get get to the bottom. Did you help Obama steal 30 million documents and bring them to Chicago? <laughs> Dan, we absolved Dan at the uh, Nashville show. That that one had about, uh, you know, I went with him to his new office. Like, I went to work there like the, the next day. And uh, like, yeah, there, there were not 30 million pages with us. Uh, no, it wasn't that big enough. Of an office. I mean, the archives has, it's, it's interesting, actually, the archives has custody of those documents and they're kind of shared with uh, the post-presidency but none of them are like sitting in in Barack Obama's basement. That's you know? too bad. Um, weird story. It will continue to evolve. It'll be interesting to see if they just wanted the stuff back, if they charge him, what more comes out. I mean, the thing that sucks about a story like this, well, it, honestly, in some ways, it's it's really hard on Trump. Is no one can ever put out the full story of what was taken because, like, by definition, you'd be exposing yeah. classified information, which means it's very hard for Trump to um, clear his name. But I think. Given what we already know, it doesn't seem like that's possible anyway. Yeah. And I, I think the biggest question ahead of us, you know, with all the caveats that we may not ever know exactly what's in every document, is what DOJ is investigating just the fact that this guy had these documents and they wanted him back? Or is DOJ investigating something that he was doing with these documents? Yeah, yeah. Both of those, he's fucked. So like both of those, he broke the law and could face really severe consequences, including prison time. But if it's the latter... Um, then we're in a real crisis. Yeah, you better not be selling those to anyone, buddy. Um, Okay, uh, next story. So we're right around the one-year anniversary of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. Uh, The short answer of sort of the situation there, Ben, it's just very dire. It's incredibly dire. I mean, unfortunately, as we expected, I think we talked about this a couple weeks ago, the Biden administration has ruled out releasing any of the $7 billion uh, of Afghanistan's money that was in the Kabul Bank that was being held on U.S. soil that was seized around that time. Uh, they suspended the talks with the Taliban as well. This all came after the operation to take out al-Qaeda leader uh, Ayman al-Zawahiri. Sort of, I mean, I think we both kind of predicted that this might happen. It's very hard to provide uh, relief to a government. No, you that predicted was... it, and they cited that reason. Oh, fuck, really? Yeah. Me? You, I mean, I, I, I blame I, me. I agreed no. with you. Uh, I, I agreed with you. Uh, like, uh, yeah. he, here's the, here's the thing. I think people need I'm to trying know. to give you credit. The the politics of giving money to a government that was literally just harboring the head of Al Qaeda are obviously very difficult. Everyone should know that. I think eighty families of victims of the nine eleven attacks just came out and said you should give back at least half of that money because the humanitarian situation yeah. is so dire that kids are starving to death and dying. So like, it couldn't be more urgent to get relief to the Afghan people, the government made it so much more difficult. Yeah. I mean, I look, I, 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 I totally understand the political reality when they're harboring a terrorist like that. I, I still think like not like denying them that money is going to force them to, to, to be better. They're not. It, it, OK, if you can't release the money to the Afghan government, I'd like to see them go to every length to use that money for 
Afghan humanitarian purposes. Can that because not only are there are a lot of Afghans who are being resettled in the United States, not enough, by the way, in the refugee program. There are Afghans all over the world, you know, who fled. And yep. there's a lot of resource needs yeah. with Afghans who are stuck in third countries and can't get to places or, you know, Brits are sending them to Rwanda. Like this would take a lot of creative good point. You know, bureaucracy and you'd probably have to bust some uh, traditions in terms of what you do with this kind of money. But if, you, if you're not going to return it to the government, I'd really like to see them try to find a way to spend that money for, for direct Afghan humanitarian and refugee-related issues. That's a know? really good point. Um, it's also worth pointing out that, you know, the Taliban, as a, the way they govern is as bad, if not worse, than we expected. Yeah. Girls are not allowed to attend secondary schools. They're being forced to cover their faces in public. Uh, again, millions of Afghan citizens are on the brink of starvation. The only silver lining for Afghans is the fact that they're no longer living in a constant war zone. And it is, you know, I'm reading news reports, but it's reportedly true that especially in rural areas, it's it's much safer. Yeah. The roads are safer. The roads that connect the country are safer because there's not, you know, a, a literal war zone. But long story short, I mean, Afghanistan needs a ton of help real yeah. fast. Yeah. Stark. Um, okay. A couple stories related to Iran, Ben. So the first was that um, author Salman Rushdie was stabbed at an event in Western New York and gravely wounded. Rushdie has been in and out of hiding since 1989 when Ayatollah Khamenei, uh, then the supreme leader of Iran, issued a fatwa against him calling for his murder. We don't know that Rushdie's attacker attacked him because of the fatwa, but it seems highly likely. Right. It would not surprise me. Second, uh, last week, the Department of Justice unsealed a criminal complaint against uh, a man in Iran who attempted to pay someone to kill former National Security Advisor John Bolton and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo on behalf of the uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. I think this guy was not the most sophisticated. He was like DMing him on like Instagram or something. Yeah, it didn't feel like, you know. He was talking to an FBI informant. Scary stuff, not to belittle it. Although John Bolton himself made a joke that like he was mad that the price wasn't higher on him. Yeah, yeah, I mean, look, I... Nobody wants to see that at all, but this didn't feel like it had reached some advanced level of, of no. planning. Or Are, were you a Rushdie fan? Yes. So I, I, I you I've know, not read uh, any of his books. To yeah, be honest. I, I'm. I, I, I was, and in part because, um, you know, I remember that it was like one of the first things I remember following because it's such a crazy story. So they put this fatwa on Rushdie after uh, Satanic Verses comes out. And his translator uh, of his Several book in the Japanese them. got killed. Several translators. The one in Italy um, got attacked. And what was so weird is that, you know, all this time passed and, and Rushdie, who'd been in kind of hiding, had kind of reemerged into society with less security, wasn't in hiding anymore. It's actually a great curb your enthusiasm. Did it curb? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a great curb. It was a fatwa against Larry making, David, making too. Making fun yeah, of fatwas, yeah. you know. Um, I do think that that to 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 put this on the Iranians who who came out and denied any responsibility, like it just shows you the uh, how dangerous that kind of ideology is once unleashed. That you know, decades later, in in a place like a quaint part of Western New York, this could happen. I, so I think it's it's one a story about how how dangerous and destructive and damaging just that vein of the Iranian theocratic ideology is, but also at a, it was doubly tragic at a time when journalists and writers are kind of in danger in lots of places that in, in America, in like one of the kind of most secure, quaint parts of totally. you know, America at a kind of a, you know, one of these writers conferences that suddenly this could happen. It kind of reinforces this kind of eerie, 
feeling that you get about, you know, after the Jamal Khashoggi murder and, you know, that just it's dangerous to be a writer now. It's dangerous yep. to have an opinion now. It's dangerous to be outspoken now. And that people need to fight back and push back against it. Yeah. And not in a whiny cancel culture way, but in like a real yeah. like taking tough. Yeah. Not in like people are going to say mean things. You know, I'm going to get yeah. like, you know, resistance dad. Shadow banned on, yeah, on yeah, Twitter. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like Don Jr. Um, we talked a lot recently about uh, Brittany Griner, the WNBA star who's been held unjustly in Russia for for many months now. The latest there is that Griner's legal team has appealed her verdict. So hopefully that will push forward the talks of uh, a prisoner swap with the U.S. We'll keep you guys updated on that, but there's no real news there. We did also want to tell you about another hostage named Austin Tice. Austin Tice is a former Marine. He became a journalist and he was abducted in Syria literally a decade ago, like 2012. And there were some talks shortly after that happened. I mean, we were in the White House at the time, Ben, with the Syrian regime about getting him home. Those stalled over time. They sort of reignited, I think, actually Cash Patel, of all people. Some of the Trump people went over to Syria to try to have conversations about uh, about getting Tice home. They were obviously unsuccessful. But recently, um, there was some movement on this because the Biden team released a statement saying they know with certainty that Syria has been holding Austin Tice. And I, I think they believe he is alive. So there's a long, excellent report on this in McClatchy that everyone should read. But I really just wanted to raise it because um, kind of raising awareness about these cases is good. It also, you know, read the story. It's just devastating what these issues do to the victims and their families. You know, like imagine losing your kid for a decade. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, we we believed he was alive at the end of the Obama administration and, and um, would always raise it, not just, you know, in whatever you know, there wasn't a lot of contact with Syrians, but we raised it with the Russians, um, given their uh, influence there. And and what was interesting is they they would never the Syrian government. It, 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 if you follow the pattern throughout this thing, they never say they have them, and they never say they don't have them. Mm-hmm. And it's actually the uncertainty that I, I like just breaks your heart ten times more over for the family because there's just this hanging question of whether they have him or not and what condition he might be in. Um, you know, th- that was a notable statement from the Biden administration that they believe he's being held, but but not much hope that there's some process that could lead to him being freed. Um, and, and and so it's just, yeah, your heart breaks for, for that family. Um, and it does just show you that there's an o- opaque n- nature to we don't talk much about Syria anymore, but like this is not like a normal government. Right. I mean, no. this is a country that is responsible for the hundreds of thousands of deaths. It's a total pariah state. It's totally dependent on kind of Russia and Iran for anything. It doesn't control its old territory. It, there are uh, so many unaccounted for people there. You know, we saw that the Gulf states, the Arab states kind of begin to normalize relations. But to what end? Like what at some point this kind of gangster regime there needs to be a process to to address this on the on what is you know looking like the back end of this year in civil war. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. 
They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than 50 countries, serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. In places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Sudan, displaced families are experiencing war, extreme hunger, and life-threatening injuries. In Gaza, ongoing violence, bombardment, and blockade have made survival difficult for families living in damaged buildings and tents. The lack of safe water, medicine, and healthy food contributes to the spread of diseases, and children are especially at risk. The International Rescue Committee is working with local partners in Gaza to provide life-saving medical care to injured civilians. The IRC works around the world to help families in crisis by delivering critical supplies such as therapeutic food for malnourished children, clean water, cash assistance, and more. Your donation will support this work and help children and families survive. Listen, the International Rescue Committee is an incredible organization. They are doing the Lord's work all around the globe. I have donated to them, you know, for many, many years now because I know that my dollar will go towards helping people. It's not going to go to administrative costs or overhead fees. It's just an incredible group doing great work. I hope you'll consider them. Donate today by visiting rescue.org rebuild. That's rescue.org rebuild. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, we've got this election coming down the pike. There's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crookedworld. Uh, another sort of long-term challenge is is Myanmar. Um, the latest news is that Aung San Suu Kyi, who's the democratically elected leader of Myanmar, was sentenced by a military court uh, on four more charges that added another six years to her previous 11-year sentence. So she is 77 years old. That's pundit barking in the back. Write that down, everybody. The New York Times reported that she's being kept in a 200-square-foot cell that reaches temperatures over 100 degrees during the day. So the military staged this coup back in February of 2021, they sentenced her to prison. There's been this just horrific civil war and fighting. It seems likely that she's going to face even more bogus charges uh, in, in the coming months. So just, you know, a pretty grim update, Ben. Yeah. And I would mentioned before when this came up that, you know, it, it, God forbid, but if Aung San Suu Kyi were to, to die in custody like that, that, I mean, whatever lid remains on that country is going to blow. Yep. Um, I should also add just like a personal note, like, you know, having met with Aung San Suu Kyi a few times, like she, she was already someone who seemed pretty scarred by her time largely under house arrest, not even yeah. in prison. So, like the example I give is that she had a real like a uh, pop culture obsession. Like one time uh, we had to bring her a DVD of glory. Like she mm. wanted to 
to watch that movie. Sure. And uh, great the, movie. The last time I saw her, actually, was, she was talking about The Crown, and but like it was, it was, it was like the, it was someone who'd been deprived of. Oh, I see. You know what I mean? Like someone yeah. who'd been deprived of 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 culture of ex, like external information at times, or had been like left to rely only on a certain number of things. She, it's just tragic that this, whatever you think, there's a lot we've talked about Hung Sing Suu Kyi and all her complexity, but. For her to be back in that situation it's horrible. Is, is really hard. It's, it's really horrible. Uh, okay, let's turn to uh, to Kenya, where there was a, a recent election, a presidential election. Uh, William Ruto, who is currently the deputy president of Kenya, was declared the country's next president on Monday. The Kenyan Electoral Commission said Ruto defeated his opponent, Raila Odinga, by a margin of 50.49% to 48.5%. But big butt here. Four members of that seven-person commission board said that they could not stand by the results because the process lacked transparency. It seems likely, or I think he may already have challenged, uh, Odinga will challenge the results in court, as he did successfully in 2017. There's serious concerns about potential violence. Uh, Ruto ran as this kind of like outsider, common man. He compared Odinga to, you know, sort of somebody who'd been in politics forever, had a family and a father, I believe, was the VP. Uh, Odingo said that's obviously bullshit. You know, he called Ruto rich and corrupt. Um, notably, the former president, President Kenyatta, endorsed his longtime opponent, Rayala Odinga, over his own deputy, Ruto. Ruto then won. Uh, ben, I don't know. It seems like there are going to be more efforts to examine these re- these results for irregularities. It'll be interesting to see what the former president, President Kenyatta, says. Hopefully this resolves quickly uh, and peacefully. But, you know, I think we're going to be talking about this for a minute. Yeah. I mean, Kenya, like, you know, hugely important country in East Africa, growing economy, really central to any effort to deal with the other problems in East Africa, including up up to places like Ethiopia. Um, just the backstory is really interesting and relevant to this, which is that, you know, Kenyatta is the the son of like the founding father of, of, of Kenya. Um, he comes to power in 2008 in a contested election <laughs> with mm-hmm. Odinga in which there was a huge outbreak of ethnic violence that killed thousands of people. Um, and in the aftermath of that, by the way, Kenyatta and Ruto were charged by the International Criminal Court for for their role. Um, now, over time, those charges you know, got, got dropped. But, they, you know, th- these same three characters have been in Kenyan politics for forever, a while. Forever, forever. Um, now, I- importantly... Um, you know, Kenyatta comes from the Kikuyu tribe, the biggest uh, tribe in, in Kenya, and, and Odinga comes from the Luo tribe, um, which uh, has felt marginalized in Kenyan history. Our uh, former boss, Barack Obama, mm-hmm. um, uh, comes from a Luo uh, background as well. Um, and and so what's so interesting here is that after the last election, where Odinga said there were irregularities, he got the Supreme Court to call another election. Kenyatta won that election. Uh, Kenyatta and Odinga had this kind of famous handshake where they reconciled. And then Kenyatta decided, actually, I'd rather this guy who was my like, you know, sworn political enemy uh, from a different tribal background in Kenya, um, I'm going to endorse him over uh, Ruto because I'm that worried about Ruto being corrupt, or maybe I'm that worried about Ruto coming after me, Prosecuting him, you know, yeah. or whatever it is. Um, that was, it was quite a dramatic turn. Um, and, and so I say all that backstory because right now what you have is a circumstance where uh, they've announced Ruto is the winner. He's a bit more of a wild card guy. He ran this campaign appealing to like the, the hustlers. Um, yep, yep. And, um, and Kenyatta has not really said much. 
and the four members of the election commission that chose not to validate these results are seen as kind of, you know, because guys, closer right? to Kenyatta, yeah. right? And, and so this could go a bunch of ways because it could go into the courts and they could force it into a runoff because if you get under 50%, it goes to runoff. They could just, you know, come out and say, no, Rudo's the winner and maybe Odinga accepts that. Odinga challenges it. Bottom line is the worst case scenario is there's an effort to challenge this result. There's violence and ethnic violence. A region that already has a bunch of violence around it suddenly has kind of its anchor state, Kenya, um, in turmoil. So the hope is whatever happens, <laughs> they get through to the other side. Kenyatta has done pretty well as president on a bunch of stuff. You know, n- not a perfect guy or perfect president. Kenya's been on a pretty good trajectory. You would hate to see that. You know, the, the, the economy has been growing, even if inequality is an enormous problem. They've tried to play a constructive role in some of these regional issues. Um, you'd hate to see all that come apart here. So this is going to be, this is something to watch for the next, yeah. you know, couple of weeks. And hopefully the White House is getting engaged. I mean, you could see like Tony being big. Tony was just in Africa yeah, too. Yeah, he was just and, over yeah, there. Yeah. 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 Not um, in Kenya, but I mean, they, they just put out this Africa strategy, yeah. right? Uh, whatever Africa strategy you have, if Kenya's not on board, like you've got a p- problem. You're in you know? a tough spot. Uh, so that's a very important, serious story that we'll watch. Let's go to a very stupid and weird one. Scott Morrison, the former prime minister of Australia, who may or may, or may not have pooped his pants in a McDonald's uh, restaurant in 1997, may have secretly held three other ministerial positions while serving as Is it as three prime or five? Minister. I read three. Okay. But if you think it's five, I let's just know. go yeah, with that. Yeah. So Mr. Morrison was the prime minister, but he was also the joint minister of health, finances, and resources, which is like Biden being the president of the United States, but also joint secretary of the treasury, HHS, and like an EPA administrator-like yeah. role. Except even weirder, because in a presidential system, those people work for you. In, a, in the Australian system, you're supposed to have some autonomy over your like your little fiefdom there. The real finance minister apparently only learned last week that he had a, <laughs> that he had a joint minister. Um, so the current prime minister, uh, Anthony Albanese, is going to investigate all of this. You know, he's part of this new, like, more progressive government that's doing great stuff. <laughs> But Ben, what I'm wondering is if this means that Scott Morrison also pooped his pants at a Burger King, Taco Bell, and Wendy's. I think that's I kind just, of the logical I, I extension. couldn't. I mean, you guys flagged this, but then I thank you to some worldos who flagged this for me on social media too, because then I it sent me down the rabbit hole. And and if it's I, five, I want to know what the other two I, are. I think yeah, I, but I just I what is the reason to secretly name yourself a minister? Like I, it, it, it was he resume. Padding? Oh, you're right. Five. The Guardian says five. Yeah, I, I, we're so, learning in real time here. What, 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 was he padding his resume because he knew he was going to lose? Uh, do you get like some like some some extra salary for like? It, I, there was something like some like mineral rights thing. I think he vetoed one of them on. I don't know. It, it's just like Scott Morrison's one of those guys where I have to say. The more you learn about this guy, like the less you like him, the sketcher he is. And <laughs> all these like joint, um, you know, the, the most cynical one is Tony Abbott, kind of noted blowhard, ha- had also made himself like a minister of like, but he did it for like women's issues, right? Which is, oh, and he was a, he was a mis- noted misogynist. misogynistic prick. So I do think, I, I like that the Albanese uh, government, in addition to their climate plan, so the most important thing is Australia has rejoined the world in fighting climate change and we love Australia and they're such a great ally. But you got to get to the bottom. I got some more details okay. for it. So this was in the middle of the pandemic. So like, boy, if you're going to seize a bunch of power, interesting time to do it. Yeah. So, uh, okay. Uh, Minister of Health was the 14th of March, 2020. Finance, the 30th of March, 2020. April 15th, he did 
uh, administer the Department of Industry, Science, Energy, and Resources. The 6th of May, the Department of Home Affairs and the Treasury. I mean, but, but didn't tell anybody. That's the constraint. The crazy thing about this is like that, like he's like secretly talk about hustle culture. What's, well, what's and, this guy and, doing? And this is not a noted intellect, right? So no. this is not a man who's like you know I really want to plumb the depths of health policy. You know, there's something going on here, and and I really implore the Australian government to not just let this one drift by, like uh, exposing the kind of strangeness and potential corruption of the Morrison administration is, is a worthy endeavor. Albanese says, turns out he was the world's first stealth bulldozer because he was pledging to, to bulldoze the government. Um, that's, I get, that's good. That's, that's good pretty line. good, yeah. yeah. Morrison said he put in place arrangements because of the uncertainty surrounding the pandemic as a break glass in case of emergency safeguard. I don't buy so, it. So, you know, is that basically like Scott Morrison is his own designated survivor? You know? <laughs> that's <good>. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. What an asshole. What a stupid uh, thing to do. Australia. We get we get great content from Australia. I love Australia. Yeah. Uh, okay. Let's talk about Ukraine. Because uh, we actually didn't talk about it last week for the first time since the, the war started. But some important things have happened. So, you know, the, the New York Times had a report that's just worth reading about the widespread indiscriminate uh, detention of Ukrainian citizens by Russian forces in areas they occupy. These detainees are often tortured. Many are killed. Uh, it's just it's another war crime to investigate in the future and another reason why this is just such a nightmare. Meanwhile, though, Ben, the, the Ukrainian military is going on offense. They attacked the headquarters of the Wagner Group, which is the Putin-linked uh, Russian paramilitary group we talked about before. Couldn't happen to a better group of guys. So, yeah, apparently a Russian journalist accidentally revealed the Wagner Group's location on Telegram, posted a photo that made it, they had like a street sign in it and uh, geolocated uh, them. <laughs> Oopsies. Great trade graph yeah. there, guys. Yeah, I hope you got a bunch of likes on it. Uh, there was even speculation that uh, Prigozhin, the, the oligarch who runs uh, the Wagner Group, was hurt or killed, but I don't think that's been confirmed. That would be massive. That would be huge. He's called Putin's chef, I think, because he supplies them food. Yeah, he was like catering over there at the Kremlin. But he's all the, jack the, of all trades. All, yeah, all the shady shit that they did in Africa, this guy was financing yes. and you know, profiting off These of guys it. are destabilizing countries all over. Um, also... Ukrainian special forces were somehow able to attack a Russian air base deep inside Russian-occupied Crimea uh, that Ukrainian officials said destroyed nine Russian military planes, which is the worst loss for the Russian military since the war started. And just a huge psychological blow to Russians who thought they were safe in Crimea. Shortly before he came in, there was another mysterious explosion at a Russian arms depot uh, deep in Crimea. So clearly they have some, uh, some partisans deep inside the peninsula who are helping them out. Here's where this gets complicated, Ben. In a speech uh, talking about these incidents, President Zelensky said that Ukraine will continue fighting to liberate Crimea, which Russia invaded in 2014, basically saying the war's not over until Crimea is liberated. That is um, a big additional step. Yeah. Yeah. That would take a lot. Um, it's an expansion of the war. So in a way, these things are connected, all these things you just talked about, because uh, first of all, the, what's happening to Ukrainians in, in areas that are occupied and these kind of, you know, it's like World War II where we didn't really know how bad it was till after, you know, yeah. like in terms of internment camps and displacement. And I worry that we're, we're just, you know, we're going to learn that as horrible as the indiscriminate bombing of cities has been that the, the the greater scale of war crimes could be whatever the hell they're doing with all these Ukrainians that they're bringing into Russia. Yeah, I mean, the occasional video that yeah. leaks out is just... And it connects to the Zelensky thing, right? Cause, and you've made this point before on, on the pod, which is that part of the reason why he can't compromise away the Donbass, for instance, is that they know that any Ukrainian that is 
left there is basically being deported. Living in know? hell, yeah. And living in hell. And so now Crimea is a bit of a different story um, geographically and, and for a lot of reasons. I think that part of what this is about is, you know, just them wanting, you know, the, where the Russians are going inch by inch in the east, you know, oh, oh, the Ukrainians are focused on the south and kind of creating a, a, a military problem for the Russians in Crimea is a way for them to go on offense. Mm-hmm. And it also, it's kind of signaling because th- this seems like it's too far to be artillery, even the the artillery we've given them. If they have special forces or partisans who are making Russian stuff blow up in Crimea, it's kind of a message of what would happen anywhere that Russia occupies territory. You know, Russia may be gaining some incremental territory in the east, but they're sending a message like, you're not safe in Crimea. You're not ever going to be safe in Luhansk or Donetsk in the east either. And they've been, the trolling has been, I mean, I saw the the explosion today. You know, they they don't confirm that they did it, but they say things like, you know, if if you're Russian looking to go on vacation somewhere, don't go someplace that is uh, held by occupiers. You yeah, know? I mean, they're like, uh, don't smoke near the ammo depot. Or don't or smoke near. Like yeah, that. they're being, you know, they, they've got this kind of pretty like intense Ukrainian humor. <laughs> you know, but like, uh, I, I do think it, it shows that like they're not going, they're not invading Russia, but attacking Crimea is like the closest thing they can do to that. Yep. And I don't know that they necessarily believe that they will retake all that territory, but I think they do believe that they can send a message. Hey. Crimea is not safe. It will never be safe. Right. Um, you're not winning territory. You're you're winning, you know, territory that is going to open up insurgency and death and destruction of your military. That's, you know, that's the message, I think. Yeah, and they're making them defend it, I think, which yeah. takes away resources exactly. from other places. Uh, a few more quick things, and we'll get to your interview. So there's been a lot of reporting lately about the problem of misinformation on TikTok. John Favreau did a great uh, offline episode about this with Professor Scott Galloway that's worth checking out you want to go deeper into whether the U.S. should basically ban the company here. But misinformation has been running rampant abroad for a long time. Uh, the Philippines, Latin America, Europe, Africa, including a lot of disinformation in this Kenyan election we just talked about. In the U.S., uh, it's a lot of lies about election fraud and, and COVID that have gotten millions of views. And it's raised a bunch of thorny questions, especially since the TikTok algorithm is pretty much a black box. We don't know if misinformation is spreading on these platforms because you know, there's just a fundamental flaw with a lot, all social media, if it's because of the something specific to TikTok and its algorithm, or, you know, more conspiratorially, if a Chinese company like ByteDance might be forced to manipulate the algorithm by the Chinese government. That kind of meddling could take a bunch of forms. It could be helping, you know, Trump hurting Biden. It could be more just the Russian model of creating conflict, uh, or it could be more subtle. And it could be, you know, tweaking the algorithm to make people feel depressed or angry or whatever you want. And so ByteDance claims that they keep data about Americans separate from the Chinese government. I don't believe them. Um, So I don't, Ben, like we talked about this way back in the day when Trump was talking about forcing the sale to Microsoft. Yeah. Yeah. Um, My thinking, this has really changed a lot. I think TikTok's become an invaluable resource for like, hundreds of millions of people they get news there they get entertainment there but like more and more news there's growing evidence of you know sort of like side effects mental health challenges etc from all social media but the chinese government's behavior has also grown super aggressive and i just think to myself okay let's say back in the day john brennan sitting at the cia and someone's like hey we could do something that could influence the opinion of 300 million chinese people would you do it i think the u.s government probably would which to me suggests that the chinese government would too. And I think we should probably act accordingly. So 
yeah, I, I've always, I've had, I've been kind of pretty freaked out about this for a little while since I started thinking about this after that Trump thing. And because it's not the the risk of, uh, you know, data, it's the risk of, of, of influence um, operations. Now, because here's what, here's what we know. Um, we know that the algorithms that run TikTok, you know, are fully under Chinese custody. And around that sale, and this is what we talked about at the time, what the Chinese would not agree to is anything that tipped the sale to 50.1% ownership right. in, in outside right. of China. So they wanted those algorithms to stay in China, yeah, they right? Um, second, like, I'm not a huge TikTok presence out there, um, but it is the one major social media platform where the content that you consume is the least determined by what you select to follow, right? So, you know, it's not like, you know, Twitter, Instagram, where all the Instagram's changing and, and <laughs> to become more like TikTok, yeah, so that, that may annoying. become moot. But like, you know, on TikTok, you pick maybe the first thing, but, you know, they, they, the algorithm feeds you. Yeah, right? and it monitors your behavior, but yes, of now, course. It monitors your behavior, but it, like you don't necessarily know what the ninth video you're totally. going to see is, right? Now, what have we seen China do? What, what do we know we've seen them do before, right? In Taiwan, for instance, where they push a lot of disinformation, they are, they're much more subtle than the Russians, right? But so like they would do things like around, uh, they, they wanted to drive wedge between the U.S. and uh, Taiwan, and so we've seen them push information that the U.S. was denying vaccines from getting to Taiwan when, in fact, China was. Or we've seen them push disinformation that, you know, anything that suggests that the U.S. is unreliable, they really they juice mm-hmm. into Taiwan. Right. Like we, we so here's what we know the Chinese do this. We know that they turn the dial on, around propaganda and disinformation purposes when it suits their interests. We know that this algorithm is controlled inside of China where there's really where there's there's no there's no real distinction between a private company and, and, and the Chinese government. Zero. And and by the way, that's not me saying it. The Chinese Communist Party has taken steps to make that clear. They've been right? brutalizing all this they, tech CEO. Jack so, Ma, like yeah. the most powerful tech CEO, like just got disappeared, right? Yeah. Like yeah. so if you think that that somehow that there, 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 there's not a risk that TikTok could be used for influence purposes. Um, you, you're just not, you're not paying attention to, to, and that's not to mean that everything on TikTok is disinformation. I'm not saying that. Look, there's a bunch of dis. We've been very critical of Facebook. We've no, been just very means critical it's a of risk. Twitter. There's a huge yeah, it just risk. means there's a risk, and we have to have eyes open about the risk. I would say that, like, if there was a platform that was designed to fill people with anxiety <laughs> about, you know, their appearance or their like, I don't know, TikTok would be like, if I were designing a laboratory, something would allow me to try to control um, younger generations of, of a foreign population. Like I would design TikTok, not, yeah. to, be, not to be overly long. Yeah, no, I, that, and I don't think they designed it, but I think like they yeah. found something that's been pretty, they found something, pretty effective. Yeah, yeah. Uh, last two things. One, Ben, a brown bear cub in Turkey somehow managed to eat enough honey, something called bitter honey, uh, that is made by bees that feed on rhododendron flowers. And it carries this neurotoxin that makes you trip balls. And basically, I just wanted to flag this because I want everyone to Google this tripping bear and see the photos of this dude sitting in the back of a truck, just off his rocker with his arm up, looking like a human being, looking like he was getting a ride to go see the dead and co or something, just like tripping face. Uh, The bear is fine. 
He's been released back into the wild. It literally looks like a dude that I see on the walk up to the Dead and Company show at the Hollywood Bowl here. I mean, just like laid out. Those people that didn't even make it to the show because they, 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 they just, just had to stop. They just stop and be alone with their trip for a little while. Doing nitrous in the parking lot. That. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, like uh, wishing the bear. Like, hope, hopefully that was one of those trips that he solved some problems. Do you think? <laughs> Maybe he worked some shit out. Maybe that bear had some 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 trauma in his past or yeah. some unresolved issues. Did he watch that Michael Pollan doc? Yeah, yeah. And hopefully, then he, he, hopefully he woke up, you know, and was feeling like, okay, that was a rough experience, but like I see things a little clearly now, you know? Do you think that bear chases that honey high like the rest of its life? <laughs> yeah, Just yeah, like, yeah. where is this fucking shit? Hey, do, do you think that bear is going up to other bears and being like, hey, do you got any of that honey? Yeah, score like, some yeah. bitter honey. The, the post story on this had like a bunch of history on it. It went back to the ancient Greeks. And there's one historian who said the Persian army left a bunch of this honey out, had a bunch of Roman soldiers eat it. They started tripping balls and then they just slaughtered them, which is like less of a good time. That's interesting. Admittedly not as fun. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Last story before you interview with Adam Schiff. Domino's, the pizza place, uh, formally shut down operations in Italy. A CNN report on this absolute uh, tragedy said, quote, (laughs) the Milan-based company faced unprecedented competition from local restaurants that started using services such as Glovo, Just Eat, Deliveroo during the blah, blah, blah. Do you think the people who started Italian Domino's had ever been to Italy before they just <laughs> no, no, yeah. <laughs> they were they too much competition where, where for pizza? I think that was a good idea. I mean, look, I, I ate a lot of Domino's, particularly when I was in college, uh, usually after like two in the morning. Um, if I also had available to me the full wealth of pizza that is Italy, like I'm not sure the first thing that would occur to me is uh, is Domino's. That's the funniest. Like, yeah. I mean, did, did Pizza Hut and Papa John's like try to bust into? I wonder if the there are other chains. Market? Yeah, like I, I hope not. Buca de Beppo. It's always like a little. I always feel kind of bad about being an American when you're in like Paris and you see like a KFC or something or McDonald's or like whenever you're in one of these like culinary our greatest exports paradises and and it's not that we don't have good food but like that's not. That ain't it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's exactly right. Uh, okay, enough of this. Although the New Yorker was good. The Domino's, remember the New Yorker? No. There was What's that? Type of pizza? Back in the day, yeah. They had a is it Yorker. square? And it's just a little bigger, frankly. Okay, uh, got yeah, it. Which is Stuff what you're crust. looking for. You're looking for bulk. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> as much dough as possible. Yeah, yeah. All right, enough of this idiocy. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and then you will hear Ben's interview with Congressman Adam Schiff about the Intelligence Committee, what the what the Congress is doing about all these secret talks squirreled away in Mar-a-Lago. So stick around for that. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. 
You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25. I am very pleased to welcome back to Pod Save the World, Adam Schiff, a congressman from here in Los Angeles uh, since 2001. Uh, he is the chair of the House Intelligence Committee. Uh, I should also note he is the author of Midnight in Washington, How We Almost Lost Our Democracy and Still Could, which I understand was just released on paperback. I, I, I got my hard copy. It's a great book. Everybody should get it. But uh, it's out in paperback now. It is. Just uh, came out today. Well, that's good. Congratulations on that. Everybody should should pick it up. It's it's incredibly relevant in addition to, to being a great story. Um, we're we're at I don't know what chapter of the crisis of democracy related to Donald Trump we're in now, but uh, we're clearly in some new phase uh, since the search of Mar-a-Lago. And obviously, you're in the middle of this as chairman of the Intelligence Committee. There's so many angles to this story, uh, Congressman. I just I want to start by just asking. Okay, we're now in a situation where they're they're clearly like the wheels of justice in motion. DOJ has taken custody of this material. What is the role of Congress now? The role of Congress and the role in the Intelligence Committee in, in trying to get to the bottom of what happened and what what damage there might have been in national security? Well, our primary concern uh, on the Intelligence Committee is the fact that you had highly classified information in a very insecure location, uh, some of which was marked top secret. Um, compartmented information, and what that often means, sensitive compartmented information, uh, what it often means is that uh, it would, if revealed, uh, cause grave damage to national security because it would reveal sources or methods of gathering intelligence. So if it's a human source, it could put their life at risk. If it's a technical source, that technical source could be disabled, uh, which means that not only is the information in those documents compromised, but uh, future information we might get from the same source may drive completely. So uh, we want to get a damage assessment. Uh, we want to know what, if anything, we can determine about whether those materials got into the wrong hands, uh, but also uh, what risk has been presented that may need to be mitigated now. And I see uh, you all have asked for a damage assessment from the Director of National Intelligence about what potential risk there could be from the compromise compromising nature of where these documents were. Um, wh what do you expect from the DNI on what timeline? Well, I hope that they can conduct that uh, very soon. Uh, we'd also like to see the documents themselves. But it's fairly routine that when the intelligence community determines uh, that uh, documents or other materials may have been compromised, they want to figure out what steps do we need to take uh, to protect either our sources or to protect uh, our, our technical means, what kind of modifications do we have to make, what kind of uh, blowback uh, in some cases do we have to prepare for uh, if it involves uh, allies or other nations that, uh, that are not hostile actors, but nonetheless we have a deep interest in. Uh, so uh, we would like to get briefed uh, as soon as that review is completed, uh, and, and you know I would have to expect they'll undertake that review very quickly. 
And do you think, I mean, this it's such a strange circumstance where I mean, this is an enormous story with huge ramifications for you know, our national security, our intelligence community, but it's very complicated when we, we don't really know what what's in these documents. Do you think we'll get to a point where, at a minimum, people like yourself who are elected representatives of the American people can have a look at what was taken? Do you think there's any capacity to describe for people so that we're not just going off of, of leaks and speculation, kind of what the nature of these documents are? Like how much transparency can be brought to a circumstance in which the underlying material itself is classified? Well, my guess is the more damaging uh, their release might be, the, the less we're going to be able to say about them, even after we have a chance to review them. Um, but, uh, you know, I would hope that we'll be able to at least uh, make a general statement to the public about the nature of what the former president had uh, and what impacts it might have had on our security. Uh, you know, it was interesting to read the government's filing uh, opposing the disclosure of an affidavit that went along with the search warrant. That affidavit is you know, usually signed by an FBI agent. It summarizes the evidence that led to the search. Uh, and they felt very strongly, Department of Justice, that the disclosure of that would not only impede the investigation, but also potentially lead uh, witnesses to be threatened uh, and, you know, sadly, given the response to the search and people putting on an armored vest and going to FBI, uh, an FBI office to shoot people, those fears seem uh, all too well-founded. Um, but hopefully we'll be able to provide as much information uh, as we can to the public. You know, I will say that the one uh, concern I have just having uh, had experience like this where there's classified information involved but also criminal investigation involved uh, is we would normally get the information right away from the Director of National Intelligence. But when the Department of Justice is involved uh, and it's a criminal investigation, uh, sometimes they're very reluctant to share much with Congress. Uh, I understand that reluctance uh, because of the confidentiality of the investigations. But here, obviously, we have a paramount interest uh, in maintaining the sanctity of those materials. Yeah, but there's, uh, yeah, I want to get into the the why of it all in a second, <laughs> um, why he took these documents. But but before we even get there, uh, you know, looking back on this, the last several years of, of Trump investigations, one of the challenges we found, particularly in the Mueller investigation, was, you know, the absence of being able to be transparent about the severity of, of things that had taken place allowed Trump and a lot of his enablers to fill a lot of space with a lot of disinformation, misinformation, um, you know, kind of wild charges back and forth. Um, is there a, a worry here that, that in, you know, a, a playing it by the book and, and taking the time, pulling the threads uh, behind closed doors um, could at the same time allow that space to be filled by the type of hyperbolic um, incitement, frankly, that we're seeing leading to people um, threatening FBI agents or public officials. How do you balance, you know, the understandable national security imperative for some some discretion, the legal process taking its time, with the kind of reality of you know post-Trump politics, where that that time can be used for pretty nefarious ends. Yeah, it's a great question, and, and we can see that the Department of Justice has wrestled with exactly that. Um, on the one hand, they leaned into disclosure of the search warrant and the inventory of what was seized. That's unusual. That's not uh, common to make that kind of thing public and, and to make it public so soon after a search. 
and yet they drew the line at the release of the affidavit, which would cause real harm to their investigation. Um, I, I think we're going to have to try to make the same judgments. Uh, that is, we don't want to disclose uh, more about these documents if indeed that they would uh, gravely damage national security and drive sources if they were disclosed. Uh, but we can count on any uh, anything that isn't disclosed being exploited by the former president to make unfounded claims. Uh, Donald Trump has shown time and time again, and this was reinforced uh, after this search, that he is willing to tear down the country along with him. If he feels like he's going down in any way, he is willing to tear down uh, the house, uh, our house, uh, around him. And, uh, and you can only imagine if the mere execution of a search warrant has him inciting people to attack the FBI, literally, um, what he would do if uh, the Justice Department moved closer and closer to uh, potential charges um, uh, regarding this or regarding January 6th or any other misconduct that the president may have been involved in. Yeah. I mean, there's, he's got a lot of irons in the fire right now. Uh, I, I do want to just, you know, I, I know we can't speculate too much here, um, but you, you obviously have the experience of being someone who's in the center of the intelligence community, um, but also, you know, experience as a prosecutor. There's been so much focus on what's in the documents and, 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 and you know, arguments about declassification, which we can get to in a second. Um, but to me, the big glaring question is why anybody would take boxes of classified documents with them? You know, what intent did he have in taking those documents? And obviously with President Trump, who seems to constantly put personal profit and interest above the country, that worries me as much as I worry about the lack of security around these documents in Mar-a-Lago. Um, do you have any sense at this point, um, as someone has looked at things from an intelligence perspective and a prosecutorial perspective, are these concerns just about getting some boxes back and having them be secure or about whether we're really looking at the DOJ is really looking at why and for what purpose the former president might have decided to pack up a bunch of boxes of some of the most sensitive information, at least from a classification standpoint, uh, that we can have in the U.S. government? You know, it's really hard to say, uh, you know, just knowing what we do of Donald Trump's uh, personality and his greed, uh, certainly, you know, things like the love letters from Kim Jong-un, uh, you can see him wanting to possess, uh, to display uh, at Mar-a-Lago or to uh, uh, exploit financially in some way. Um, in terms of the classified documents, uh, the only clue I think we have seen about them, and, and all I know is the basis uh, of what we've seen in, in public reporting, is Devin Nunes' former staff member, Cash Patel, yeah. who arose like kind of an evil zealot through the <laughs> Trump administration, said publicly uh, that uh, there were documents that they took relating to the Russia investigation. Uh, and, uh, you know, I do recall that John Ratcliffe, the former... Uh, DNI, Trump's former DNI, who terribly politicized the intelligence community. You might recall uh, he declassified documents um, right before one of the presidential or vice presidential debates so that uh, Trump or Pence could use them in the debate. I mean, it was the most destructive uh, use of intelligence, abuse of intelligence I've ever seen. Um, so it may be that there were more documents along the lines of what uh, they declassified in advance of those debates that uh, Trump or others thought it was advantageous for him to keep. 
but I, we simply don't know. Uh, but that was a clue that was given by Cash Patel, uh, not someone I would tend to rely yeah. on, but, uh, but there may be a certain logic there. Yeah, I was going to ask about Cash Patel. I mean, because, yeah, he kind of emerged as Trump's representative, apparently, on these documents and by no means a good faith actor. What does it say about what I mean, there's so many angles to this, but one is that worries me is the kind of people that Trump would, if he tried to get back into the White House, that he would try to bring with him and put in charge of things. You know, like we had um, Cash Patel and Rick Grinnell and people like that kind of ascending you know, like the last people standing who would do whatever he wanted at the very end there. And and we see part of the outcome is like boxes of classified documents are leaving the White House. I mean, what does this tell us about what a sequel to the Trump presidency could look like? Uh, you know, it's a great point. Uh, what we saw over the four years of the Trump presidency is uh, anyone of any stature, anyone of any independence or independent thought, uh, Trump got rid of. Uh, you know, in the case of Secretary Mattis, uh, of course, he resigned. Uh, others uh, were forced out, uh, and they were inevitably replaced by worse and worse and worse. Uh, and I think that what we can expect, uh, should he be given the levers of power again, uh, is that he would start out with people who are uh, utterly willing to do anything he wanted, no matter how violative of the public trust uh, or even the law. Uh, I shudder to think uh, where we would go from where we were. Uh, you know, if you look at the Justice Department, uh, Bill Barr and others are trying to reinvent their reputations these days. I'm glad Bill Barr finally got to a point where he wouldn't uh, cross the line anymore, but he crossed a lot of lines before he got there. Uh, and and so who would go there next? Well, if Bill Barr wouldn't uh, take that final step of agreeing to uh, make false claims of fraud about the election, well, then the next attorney general Trump would pick would do that. Uh, so yeah. uh, I think um, it's part of the reason why that man can never be allowed to go near power again. Yeah. And the one other Cash Patel adjacent question I wanted to ask you is, you know, he's been at the forefront of making this case that Trump, you know, could magically declassify whatever he wanted, wherever he wanted. Put aside that there's a lot of internal logic to this argument, because they seem to simultaneously be arguing, oh, maybe... They didn't know what he'd taken in these boxes that were packed. But if he did take classified documents, he must have declassified them. Um, as a functional matter, as someone who's handled these documents like you have, if you're talking about top secret documents, one thing I think that hasn't got a lot of discussion is that it's not like the documents themselves are the only thing you have to declassify. The documents presumably would either be describing or derived from pretty sensitive methods of collection and programs of collection that you might have to declassify as well, right? Because you're not just declassifying the printed words on the page. You're, you know, to, to take him at face value, he would probably have had to declassify all of the intelligence collection that went into those documents. I mean, do you see any validity whatsoever to this idea that uh, he somehow magically declassified these things when they came into his residence or when they, when they were packed up to Mar-a-Lago? Well, I don't see any validity to it. Uh, and of course, Cash Patel will say whatever Donald Trump wants him to say. Um, but, uh, you know, I think the, the, the reality is in a normal world, in a normal administration with a normal president dedicated to national security, if they thought there was a public purpose to disclosure of classified information, they would go through the process where that is identified for the intelligence community. The intelligence community then goes through the same assessment, really, that would look a lot like a damaged assessment. 
to determine, well, what impact would it have on sources and methods? What impact would it have on future collection? What impact would it have on friends or adversaries? Uh, and then that information would be used by the president to determine, okay, in that case, it doesn't make sense to declassify it, uh, or maybe it still does. Um, there's no evidence that any of that went on uh, or that there's any paperwork uh, 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 to back that up. All you have is Cash Patel blithely saying it. Uh, that ain't enough. It's certainly not enough to protect the country. Uh, and with respect to certain uh, restricted uh, information, uh, the president simply can't willy-nilly say it anyway. And a former president certainly has no power uh, to retroactively declassify things. Uh, finally, I'll just say we've seen a shifting, endless series of uh, uh, explanations, rationalizations, defenses, excuses. Uh, the documents were planted by the FBI, the former president suggested, or they could have had them uh, if they wanted them when they were subpoenaed and didn't uh, apparently turn them over. Uh, and, uh, and then just uh, this being one of the latest that, oh, no, uh, he had such a work ethic that he needed to bring the documents home to study. Well, <laughs> is he still studying them in Mar-a-Lago? Uh, anyone who's seen anything about the president's work ethic uh, can see how fanciful that idea is. Yeah, they were they were planted by the FBI, but he had somehow declassified them before they were planted. But none of it makes sense. All right, last question I want to ask you, and it ties into your book being out. I mean, we've had this conversation, and you've been obviously so uh, publicly outspoken about the danger to democracy for years. You know, we're at this phase now where you know there's there's some good things happening, right? It's been a good month um, for the passage of important legislation. Uh, it seems like the Dobbs decision has kind of enlarged the number of Americans who are kind of seized with the reality that there's kind of a minority trying to impose its will on the majority. And yet, you know, we also see election deniers embedded into state legislatures, really extreme candidates put forward for the U.S. Senate or governorships, threats, uh, really importantly, threats to um, public officials, to the FBI, literal acts of violence taking place. I'm sure huge volume of threats coming into, you know, to, to local law enforcement and federal law enforcement. And it, you know, feels pretty unsteady out there. I mean, wh wh where are you right now in terms of um, the, the current challenge to our democracy and what the most important things are that we can focus on um, in, the, you know, in the coming months here to continue to weather these, this turbulent period we're in? Uh, you know, I, I wrote about this in a, a new afterward uh, for the book. Um, a year and a half after January 6th, we're now tragically more vulnerable than we were as a democracy on that day. A democracy is more vulnerable at home uh, and with the war in Ukraine. Uh, now it is more vulnerable uh, around the world as well. Um, they have taken that big lie and run with it to usher in a new generation of Jim Crow laws, uh, to uh, change the elections infrastructure. State legislatures are taking steps to try to make it easier to overturn the next election uh, on another baseless uh, claim of fraud. Uh, and, uh, and, and so I, I think we find ourselves uh, in an even more precarious position. Um, had Kevin McCarthy been the speaker uh, in 2020, he would have overturned the election. Yeah, uh, it's one of the reasons why these midterms. Uh, it's no exaggeration to say that our democracy is on the ballot. Because uh, should we not hold the House um, and Trump run and lose again, they will overturn the election. 
the election deniers uh, among the Republican candidates are a majority of the Republican candidates for the House around the country. Uh, they have been winning GOP primaries. Uh, I, I do think that Dobbs' decision was uh, very revealing to the American people of just the extreme nature, the extreme reactionary nature of today's GOP. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm pleased to see that in the wake of that decision um, and with all of the positive things we've been able to accomplish uh, on our side in Congress, that the polling has really changed uh, in the last 10 weeks uh, to the point now where uh, essentially it is a wash uh, and uh, for the party in power in the White House in the midterm, the first midterm, to be a parody uh, with the other party is a remarkable thing. Uh, and we hope that the trend will continue and as we go into the election, uh, Democrats will be favored to hold the House. Uh, but uh, democracy may very well turn on the result. Yeah, well, that's a it's an important note to end on, and I'm sure uh, our our listeners share that, including our listeners around the world who who recognize how much is at stake with uh, the survival and, and resilience of American democracy. Well, thank thanks for all you're doing, and uh, look forward to to checking in with you again as this uh, this story obviously will continue to develop. Great to be with you, and thank you for all your good work. Thank you, Adam Schiff. Uh, thanks uh, to uh, the bitter honey. Thanks. If anyone has some, yeah, um, I mean, yeah, I'm not above trying. Send uh, it over. I mean, it's just honey, right? We're in, we're in, wrong with that, we're in right? Hollywood. We're in California. I think everything's legal here now, right? I mean, some of the psilocybin stuff is, I think, in like Colorado. Yeah. Jokes yeah. aside, the Michael Pollan ketamine stuff you know, book like, and. Yeah. Uh, Netflix series on this is really good. Yeah, yeah. About the use of hallucinogens. It's actually the next MDMA. thing. I, we've had the legalization boom on uh, marijuana. I think this is coming down the pike as the next thing. This bear may be a pioneer. This bear, yeah, this bear is going to be <laughs> yeah, spokesperson. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's all this research before. Basically, there's all this really interesting research about mental health benefits of like ketamine, MDMA, psilocybin. And then everyone flipped out when their kids turned into hippies in the 60s and they made it all schedule one and they banned it and they did away with all this this really great research. And now people are like, that was stupid. Thanks, I mean, Reagan. Yeah, yeah, thanks, Reagan. Thanks, war on drugs, <laughs> you know? How's that going? I think war on drugs is one of the dumbest fucking things that's ever happened. In the history I don't think of we the don't world. talk about it enough how dumb it was. Oh, no, we just threw people in prison. Yeah, and now we're like illegally like, you know, ingesting stuff here in California. Every, everyone should Google... Um, uh, I think it was Nixon's chief of staff who said their enemies were essentially black people and anti-war advocates and the war on drugs allowed them to target both. And put them in prison. Yeah. yeah. That yeah. was the whole goal. That's great. Well. Said it on the record. It's yeah. not a secret. Yeah. Meanwhile, they've been, you know, eating this honey in Turkey for thousands of years. Thousands and of years. Turned out fine. And this bear, like, he Fucking looked, up he Roman looked like soldiers. he was doing okay. He had a blast. Yeah. He had a great time. Uh, <laughs> talk to you guys next week. But it was week. lonely. Like, he couldn't find anybody to trip with him. You know? Yeah, like, he needed yeah, a buddy. Yeah, yeah he needed a buddy. That's honestly, a, the mistake this bear yeah, made. It's like, it's, it's a little hard when you're alone. You That's know? a good note. Not that I know. I'm just saying. Yeah, yeah, of course. Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our producer is Haley Muse. Saul Rubin is our associate producer. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Milo Kim, and Amelia Montooth. Upload our episodes and videos at youtube.com slash crookedmedia.
Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that.